Uh, let's go ahead and open our Bibles to uh, Revelation chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 18 through 29 this morning. As you know, in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, those two chapters comprise letters that Jesus actually wrote or dictated to John to write down to give to the churches at that time. And we're talking about sometime around uh, 95 or 96 A.D., Okay, so this is well after, some 60 years after Jesus has died on the cross. And so now John, a very aged man, receives this revelation from the Lord Jesus Christ on the Isle of Patmos, which you know is in the uh, Aegean Sea, just off the coast of modern-day Turkey, about 30 miles. And it's there that the Lord gives this, these letters to John. And each of these letters... Are, uh, contains encouragement, and it also contains things that these churches could be doing better. And the Lord is so wonderful. He always brings the things that we're doing well first, and then He also says, but I also have something against you. In other words, you have some things you need to work on. Aren't you glad that the Lord is like that? Because He is God, He has the ability to just speak us out of existence. I mean, He's able to do that. We know that Jesus rose again from the grave. He passed through walls in this resurrection body that he, that he has, and He spoke all things into existence. And so it is easy for the Lord to speak something out of existence. He could have done that. He could have done that. But the Lord loves us, you see. And, and that's the thing that people don't always understand, is they think that God is just this angry deity in the sky that just is looking and can't wait, actually, to pound you for your sin. And that's just not the nature of God. There have been churches over the centuries, and churches even in America today, that preach a God that's angry and is just angry with you. But l- listen, folks, you know this. But Jesus became sin for us on that cross. He bore the punishment for our sin. There's no need for God to be hammering on us. He does chasten those whom He loves, but it's different. Chastening is with uh, instruction to draw us closer to Him, and condemnation is destruction. And that's really what happened with Jesus on the cross. He was condemned by His own Father. God in the flesh, Jesus, hung there on the cross while God the Father condemned Him on the cross. And Jesus bore the punishment for your sin and my sin. So there's no need for God to want to crush you. In fact, it is because of His great love for you that He gave this gift. Isn't that what the Gospel says in John's Gospel? For God so loved the world. Some churches, you almost wonder if they should rewrite their own Scripture and say, so God so hated the world that He just wanted to squash them like a grape. But folks, that's not the truth. It's not the truth. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever, whosoever would believe in Him would not perish but have what? Everlasting life. And see, this is who God is. And so He gives this, these churches correction, but first He tells them the things that they're doing right. And so we're going to look at the fourth church, and today we land on Thyatira. Some things about Thyatira before we actually read the Scripture. As you know, there's seven letters. We're reading the fourth of those seven letters. And of the seven letters, this one is the longest. It's the longest letter that Jesus had written to these seven churches. And it's also one of the smallest cities, the least known, the most obscure. And it's the only church of the seven where Jesus commends them for their agape love. Remember, agape 
in Greek or in English is love, but in the Greek it's agape, and that word is 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 the highest form of love in the Greek language. It's it's the most amazing love. It's the most self-sacrificing love. It's the most other-centered love. It's the kind of love that Jesus demonstrated for us while he was on the cross, right? And so, but this is the only church of the seven where Jesus commends them for their love, for their love. And it's also a church, or an area, the city was known for its numerous trade guilds. They had many carpenters, uh, dyers of, of, of materials, merchants, cloth makers, and other trades. And if you remember Lydia from the book of Acts, she came from this town. Now, you have to remember that if you're looking at a map, per se, of Asia Minor where Thyatira is, in Acts chapter 16, verse 14, it tells us that Lydia, it says that she was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira, who worshiped God, and the Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. So she was in Philippi in Macedonia, which is modern-day Bulgaria, Greece, in that area. This is where Paul met up with her about 30 years, at least 30 years prior to this letter being written to Thyatira. So this woman, Lydia, was a believer, and she was originally from Thyatira, evidently had traveled west over to Philippi, and that is where Paul in Acts chapter 16 meets her, and she entreats them and takes care of them, you know, for their food and, and, and covering and stuff like that. And so it's a really wonderful event if you read that in Acts 16. And it very may well have been that when she came back to her homeland, to Thyatira, after a meeting with Paul, it may be that, that she may have been one of the catalysts for the church that started there. And so it's kind of interesting to, to consider. But another thing about this city that is unlike the other cities, other churches that we've talked about so far, for instance, uh, Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum that we've already discussed, unlike those other cities, uh, this city, Thyatira, was, it wasn't a pagan religious center and didn't have any great pagan temples like the other cities did. Uh, even though they worshipped false gods in this city, it wasn't like Pergamum where there was a, a temple on every high hill. So Thyatira was not like that. And there wasn't centers of emperor worship like we saw in Pergamos and other cities that we've already talked about. Let's go ahead and read now Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 through 29, and then we'll go back and take a look at each one of these things. Revelation 2, verses 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, These things says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet like fine brass. I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you, because you allow that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and the hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your works. To you, I say, and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, 
who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden, but hold fast what you have till I come. And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron, and they shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessel, as also I have received of my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so let's go back into verse 18 and let's take a look at this. An interesting church, it's called the corrupt church. And you know, it's an unfortunate thing when you consider what God has done in the lives of His people. He's given us the Spirit of God to indwell us. He's given us the hope of heaven. He's given us the hope of the rapture of the church, which the Bible is very clear about, that Jesus is clear about. And we, we have this, this treasure in earthen vessels, don't we? In, the, in these earthen vessels that we have. And God loves us so much. And His desire for the church is that we might shine, that we might bear fruit for Him, that we might be ambassadors for Him to the world because the world needs to be saved. Now, the whole world is not going to be saved, but the world needs to be saved, just like you and I individually needed to be saved. I needed to be saved from my old nature. I needed to be saved from the punishment that I deserve because of my sin. I was born a sinner. Every one of us was born in sin. Isn't that what the Bible says? For there is none good, no, not one, says the Lord. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So we all have that stamp of of condemnation on us, and that's why we needed Jesus. That's why we needed a new nature, because I was born with a dead nature, and a nature that was corrupt, and we inherited it from our parents, Adam and Eve. In Hebrews chapter 5, or Romans chapter 5, it talks about that, how it was passed along, this, this nature of sin was passed along to us. And that's why you don't have to teach a baby to be selfish, because it's, it's very natural, because they're born a sinner. In spite of how cute they are when they're born, we all need Jesus. And so we need to be born again. That's what the Bible says. But the church is meant to be something that is holy. The church is meant to be something that is an ambassador for God to the world. And we need to worship Him. We need to be vocal about Him. Are you vocal about your faith, about Jesus to other people? I would encourage you to not allow yourself to be cloistered in and allow the fear of what people may think of you as you go out into the world, because that is one of the reasons why we're here. That's one of the reasons why the Lord has saved each one of us. He's got a plan for each of our lives. Have you discovered you know, what that plan is? It's a wonderful plan. I'm discovering what the Lord's plan is. I'm discovering it. Notice I didn't say discovered, because He's working, and He's still working. And I, I don't know what He has for me in the future, other than that it's good if it's in Him. And I may go through difficulties, but I know that ultimately he's got my, you know, he loves us and he's got a plan for each of our lives. So that's his plan. And his plan was never that the church would be corrupt. His plan was never that the church would be so enamored with the things of the world that people would cease to to understand what the difference is between the church and the world. And there ought to be a very big difference But it's unfortunate in the time that we live in, and it's been happening for a long time, ever since the church was birthed in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, that the church has been enamored and and, and gets lazy. And we, we, we look at the things of the world and we desire those things only to realize that it's like gravel in our mouth. After we reach for the candy that, that the devil puts out for us, we, we reach for whatever that is and we find that we're not satisfied. And the Lord is saying, I am your satisfaction. I am the one who can fulfill you. And yet, 
because we're not in the Bible, because we're not in the Word of God, because we're not in prayer, because we're not demonstrating those things and allowing God to use us, what happens to us? We get, we get kind of old and we get kind of stale. We need revival. Jesus wants to revive us because we have grown cold and we've gone asleep and we need to be revived again. We need to be revived again. You revive something that was once alive and that's why we need it. And that's why this church that we're looking at this morning is so important to us because this is what we don't want to become. Now, corporately, this church was corrupt, but Jesus said, as we read here in the text this morning, that not everyone in the church had these was, was uh, incorporating and listening to this doctrine and, and, and giving themselves over to idolatry. Not all of them were. Uh, many of them were, were holding fast, and he admonished them for that. And see, we need to be that part of the church that holds true to the Word of God, that holds fast to the things that he has given to us. We cannot be lazy, and especially in the time that we're living in now, we have to let our light shine brighter than ever before brighter than ever before. So let it challenge you. Don't let it condemn you because God doesn't want to condemn you, but I will say that he wants to challenge you. He wants to challenge me to get out of my, uh, my fear of man and to focus on him and not to be afraid of what man could do to us. So let's look at verse 18. It says, And to the angel, or the pastor, if you will, of the church in Thyatira, Write these things, says the Son of God. I would have you underline Son of God because this is the first time uh, that he refers to himself as the Son of God in, the, in any of the seven letters. He says, These sayings, says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. The word Thyatira, this name literally means sacrifice of labor. Or in modern times, uh, it, it can also mean white castle. And I don't know the connotation of that, honestly. I haven't looked into that, but it doesn't really matter. Uh, Thyatira, um, notice that he says, These things says the Son of God. The Son of God. Notice the authority that Jesus has as the Son of God. And, and that's good for this church to know because, because of their compromise, because of how they allowed themselves to be corrupted. Sometimes we need to be jostled out of our, out of our slumber. And Jesus says, These things says the Son of God, not the Son of Man, but the Son of God. And that ought to instill reverence in the heart of everyone who hears that, especially when he's addressing them in that way. The Son of God. Remember what it says in John chapter 1, verse 1. Jesus is the Son of God. He is Almighty God. In John chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he, the Word, was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. We find out later in verse 14 that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So this Word, this Logos is what it means in the Greek, he became flesh and dwelt among us, and we know who he is. right? It says right here that he's equal with God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So Jesus is God. And I love in in Colossians chapter 1 what it says in verse 15. Paul said to them, to the Colossians, he said, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. Did you get that? That is so important. For by him, by Jesus... All things were created. So who created the world and everything in it? Jesus did. 
Jesus did. God the Father gave all authority to His Son. He did. And He created all things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created, notice, through Him and for Him. Boy, that's powerful. And He is before all things, and in Him all things consist. He is the head of the body, the church. Who is the head of the church? It's not the Pope. The head of the body is Jesus Christ. Is the head of the body uh, any pastor on this earth? It doesn't matter how famous they are. Is the head of the church Billy Graham? As much as I love Billy Graham, he is not the head of the church, and he would be the first to say so. He knows, and he knows right now, because he's in glory with the Lord right now, that Jesus, he is the head of the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, and in all things, that in, that in all things, we might, that he might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him all fullness should dwell. So Jesus is God. In a chapter over from Colossians 1, in chapter 2, verse 9, it says, For in him, speaking of Jesus, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. That is the mystery of the incarnation. How can this almighty God, who the Bible says that even the heavens can't contain him, and that he ha- he holds, and everything is in the palm of his hand. Another In Isaiah, I believe it is, it says that he holds the world, the whole universe, in the span of his hand. That That's how big God is. And, and that's just a, a picture. He's much bigger than that, of course, but all of that could be put into a small package of a human being. That is the mystery of the incarnation, that God, he's fully man, but he's fully God. And I love what it says in Matthew 28, verse 18. Jesus, after his resurrection, said to his disciples, he came to them and said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and in earth. And uh, so Jesus... It uh, is Almighty God, and He's equal with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. What does it say in Philippians? As I'm just rattling these off, I would just encourage you to write these scriptures down, review them later, but I'm going to read some of them to you, and be encouraged about who Jesus is. Because remember, He's talking to them. He says, Thus says, Thus says the Son of God. And so I'm going to develop this just a little bit more before we move on here. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, What did uh, Paul say to the church at Philippi? He said, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Notice, he's equal with God. But he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. That's encouraging, isn't it? Because that's who Jesus is. Is that the Jesus that's being portrayed in, in other churches? Not necessarily. Some actually put Mary on a higher pedestal than Jesus. They say that you have to pray to Mary in order for Jesus to listen. That is heresy, folks. That is not the truth at all. In fact, that's what one of the reasons of the Reformation with Martin Luther was that very thing that I just shared with you. There is no one. He is the head of the church. Jesus is God. He is equal with God the Father. And because of this authority, it behooves us, doesn't it, for us to listen to what He has to say. And one of the signs of the end times that, that is, is clear is a revolt and a disdain against all authority. Against all authority. And as we look at this church, they became more enamored and, and weren't holding to sound doctrine, but they were um, putting those, the, the truth, they were pushing it away, keeping it at bay. They didn't want to hear the truth. They wanted to hear things that made them feel good, that made them 
that brought pleasure to their bodies, that, that brought pleasure to their mind and their own ego. But what does it say? In Jude chapter 1, verses, uh, in Jude at chapter 8, actually, it says, uh, as Jude is talking about false teachers in the end days, he says, likewise, these dreamers, they defile the flesh, they reject authority. Notice, they reject authority and they speak evil of dig- dignitaries. These are luminaries, and it could mean angels or authorities uh, that we have, even uh, uh, physical authorities that we have, governors, presidents. But they, 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 they disdain those things and they speak evil of authority. Uh, uh, Paul speaking to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3. He also said this. He spoke to Timothy and he said, But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come. I believe we're in those times, don't you? <laughs> Is there anybody in the world right now that can say, No, these aren't perilous times. Things have just been going great. Love this place. <laughs> I want to stay here forever. Are you, do you want to stay on this earth forever? I don't. <laughs> I'm ready to go. I'm ready to go and be with the Lord. I'm ready to be in heaven. And certainly we're going to be on this earth, we know, for at least a thousand years. But that's a whole other topic. Before the end, the end of the end, where, there will, where eternity will be ushered in, a new heavens and a new earth. You can read about that in the very last book of, of Revelation. But notice what he says to Paul, or what Paul says to Timothy, excuse me. He says, but know this, 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. He says, but know this, that in the last times perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves. They'll be lovers of money, boasters, they'll be proud, they'll be blasphemers, disobedient to parents. And there it is. They're unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying the power. And what does Paul tell Timothy? From such, turn away. But notice, disobedient to parents. The whole family structure we see is is, has been breaking down. And that's why it's so important for a time like this as we're kind of rediscovering our family <laughs> with this, with this COVID-19 uh, thing that we've got going on here. We're rediscovering, isn't it? We're rediscovering one of the beauties of, of family. And even though we're apart, that there's a closeness. We've been getting closer. We've been talking. We've been doing video chats, all of these things. But in our culture today, there is a battle for truth. And I've said it before and I'll say it again. In every battle, the first casualty is truth. But there is absolute truth. We have to understand that. Jesus is the truth. And what we have in our laps right now, in our Bibles, that is absolute truth. You can bet everything on it. And in our society today, they want you to believe that everything is relative and that what is good for you might not be good for you. And if it's good for you, that's fine, but I've got a different truth that I can abide by. But that's not the case. There is absolute truth. 2 plus 2 equals 4. It always does. 2 plus 2 equals 4. And guess what? Jesus is God. He is God. And He says what He means, and He means what He says. He doesn't mince words. He's the Creator. Going on in verse 18, it says, These things says the the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. This 
phrase, eyes like a flame of fire, we notice we got this, um, or, or Jesus is giving a, a description of himself. And we first saw it in Revelation chapter 1, verse 14, where it says, he describes, John describes Jesus in his glorified state. And one of his descriptors is, his head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes as the flame of fire, and his feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace." eyes like a flame of fire. And what does that speak of? Flame speaks of purity. Flame speaks of purifying or refining. And that's exactly what it is. It speaks of God's omniscience. He knows all things. I would encourage you to read Psalm 139 because it talks about God's omniscience and His omnipresence. The fact that He's all-knowing. He can't learn anything because He knows all things. And He's in all places at once. He cannot learn anything. And He sees and knows all. Even when the lights are turned out and you're on a remote part of the world, the Lord is with you there. But His flame of fire, His eyelids. I love what it says in Psalm 11, verse 4. You can write this down. Psalm 11, verse 4 through 7, it says, The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. Notice, His eyes behold, His eyelids test the sons of men. His eyes, like a flame of fire, it tests, it proves, it, 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 it shows the quality of, the true quality of the sons of men. And see, that's one of the wonderful things about Jesus is that He can look into a life. See, we always judge by the outward appearance, but God can look right in through the, the middle of somebody and without all the trappings, without all the makeup, without the, without the clothing and the fancy stuff, without the degrees and the, and the fine language, He can look right through all of that and see who that person really is. And that's exactly what he's doing to this church in Thyatira. He's saying, I'm the one who has the eyes as a flame of fire. And what does it say in Malachi? This is the very last book of the New Testament in chapter 3. In in verse 2 it says, But who can endure the day of his coming? Speaking of Jesus. Who can endure the day of Christ's coming? And who can stand when he appears? Remember that verse in the uh, Handel's Messiah? Who can stand when he appeareth, right? In the King James. But who can stand? Who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire. A refiner's fire. And like launderers, or in the King James, fuller's soap. A launderer's soap, he's, he's, he's like that. And he will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver. And we all know the analogy here that any uh, metalsmith would heat up um, metal and as it is molten, he would skim off the top the impurities because that's exactly what happens when metal is melted. And if it's continued the flame is still continued underneath of it. What Eventually what happens is the impurities within that gold or silver rises to the top. It's called the dross. And they would have a tool to skim off the top and they would take off that dross and then they would continue heating it. And as it would heat up, more dross would come to the top. And the more they did that, the more purified that silver or gold became, the more precious it became, the more valuable it became. So as the Lord is using Uh, As he's using this uh, illustration of his eyes being like a flame of fire, he's purifying. 
And that's what he does. He has purified the church by his blood. But practically speaking, we still have to go through this process of sanctification. And every one of us has areas in our life where we need to really examine, right? And that's why repentance is so important. And nobody likes the word repentance, but it just means turning away. Turning away from the old man, the way I used to be. You know, some people were swore like a sailor. Some people were promiscuous and had many sexual partners. Some people were drug addicts. Some people were cheaters. Uh, they, they cheated on their taxes. They cheated. Uh, they stole from their boss at work pencils and little things like that, and maybe even bigger things. You know, we all had backgrounds that were not ashamed, that we are ashamed of. But guess what? God is refining. And it's, and it's okay as we go through this process for God to expose those things. And He does it because He loves, right? Isn't that why He does it? Because He loves. Remember that. He's not angry. He wants to refine you. He wants to prepare you to meet with Him. I love that. And notice what it says there in the last part of verse 18. Uh, his feet were like fine brass. Brass speaks of judgment in the Bible. You remember in Exodus chapter 27, you don't have to go there, but in Exodus 27, it talks about the materials that the altar and the laver that they would use to wash after the, after the sacrifice and before, actually, that they would use, and the material was made of brass. And why brass? Uh, even the very materials of the tabernacle, of the temple in the Jews' day, had a purpose. And, 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 and the, the material that it was made of was symbolic because brass always speaks of judgment. And why? Because that's where the sacrifice was placed on the altar. Judgment was done upon that animal in my place. That's what the sacrificial system was for. It was for atonement. Instead of me being up on that, God says, you can put a lamb. But remember that your life is that lamb. It's a substitutionary atonement, and that's what it's about. So brass speaks of judgment, and we also know that, that Jesus was ultimately, He was judged on the cross for our sin. His feet were like fine brass, and His feet, we know that in Psalm 110 it says, the Lord, uh, in verse 1, says, The Lord, Jehovah, said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. So God the Father now in this psalm through David is speaking of Jesus. So God the Father spoke to the Son and said, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. And a footstool is something that's beneath the feet. It means that the one who has the feet on it has authority over that thing, right? That's what it means. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 24, it says this, Paul speaking to the Corinthians about the resurrection and the resurrection body and about the, the death being done away with. He says, Then comes the end when he, Jesus, delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. Do you see that? All enemies will be put under his feet. And the last enemy, verse 26, that will be destroyed is death. For he, and he's quoting here from uh, Psalm 110, for he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to Him, God the Father, who put all things under Him, that God may be all in all. And perhaps this is the reason 
Perhaps this is the reason that Jesus described himself with the eyes of the flame of fire and the feet like polished brass because they were allowing, they were being tolerant of what was going on in the church. And we read that, Jezebel, who was this woman, and we'll look into her in just a few minutes, but this whole idea of tolerance, it's a buzzword today, and it has been for a long time. And tolerance, uh, along with it comes the idea that there are no absolutes that the only absolute is that there are no absolutes. That's the mantra of today. And liberal thinkers, liberal universities, even liberal theologians all have this great God of tolerance. And I say that with tongue-in-cheek as one of their pet doctrines. They, They hold to this idea of tolerance, so much so that they forget the truth. Yet they are intolerant of anyone who does speak and believes in absolute truth. You know, notice that? The whole world wants tolerance. Well, if it's good for you, that's okay. You know, leave me alone. Yeah, but there is truth. And, and, and while they preach tolerance, they're, they're not tolerant against those who know what the truth really is. We, Christians, we have the Word of God. We have the Bible. We have Jesus Christ. And believe me, they are going to be ashamed one day when they stand before Him. They will stand before Him and they will give an account. Unbelievers will give an account of how they have disdained Him and disdained the truth, his word, and disdained even his people, and how they have been a thorn in the flesh of all of us. It, it doesn't mean that, that, that God loves the people. Understand that. He loves the people. But just as he hates uh, their sin, he hates my sin just as well. God would have none to perish, but all to come to repentance. We have to remember that. It's in 2 Peter 3, verse 9. But... Even back in the 90s, 30 years ago, a Gallup poll was taken and 96, I'm sorry, 67% of the American people believe that there is no such thing as absolute truth. That was 30 years ago, folks. I, I fear to think what it is today. One author said this, all we want is tolerance. And this sounds like the world today. All we want is tolerance. We are quick to sacrifice sacred virtue on the secular altar of tolerance. And he says, if we continue to reject absolutism, the belief in fixed moral standards, we are headed for doom. And and I believe that's where we're at. We're right on the verge of this. If we're not already in it, we're in a really bad place in our country. And that's why we need to wake up. That's why the church needs to be revived. That's why we need to be vocal. And is it any wonder why there is so much hopelessness and a flagrant disregard for the truth and morals in our young people today. The young people today are are flagrantly uh, opposing the truth and opposing authority. We see it. We see it. And uh, my brother and my mother, who were, uh, my brother's still in law enforcement, my mother's retired now, but they, they have testified to me numerous times that when they started off in the law enforcement that there was a respect for the uniform. There was a, a, a respect, a reverence for who a police officer was. And now there's, there's no respect at all. No respect. Someone will come up and just spit on a police officer. And this happens all the time. And they disdain them because they know that they can't do anything. All because of political correctness. And, um, and it's a horrible thing. But as we approach the end of the age, which we are, there are very few great role models for young people. And I would encourage you, moms and dads, grandpas and grandparents, grandmothers, be an excellent role model for your kids in everything. 
be an excellent role model for them in everything. I love what Paul said to the Romans in Romans chapter 12 and verse 2. What does he say? He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And how do you do that? You read the Word of God. That's why I see all my life I've been brainwashed by everything I see on television. They tell me that homosexuality is okay. They tell me that fornication is okay. They tell me that uh, all these things are okay that are going on, that it's okay. It's okay. If it feels good, do it. No. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So important for us to be role models for our kids and our grandkids. Going on to verse 19, he says, I know your works, I know your love, I know your service, I know your faith and your patience, and as for your works, that the last are more than the first. We saw this, Jesus used the same word, Greek word, in works here. It literally means toil. And love that he's talking about is agape love. And this is the first church that he mentions this. He commends them for their love. I know your works. I know your love. I know your service and your faith and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. This church had a great love and was demonstrating that, but their doctrine in other areas of the church was not sound at all. It was not sound. They were struggling uh, portions of the church were giving into those demonic, wicked things uh, in the church. And we'll see who was, the, who was behind this. But notice, he says, I know your work, I know your toil. And their toil and their fervor for the Lord was increasing as they went on rather than decreasing. In Psalm 92, there's a really wonderful verse. And for those of you who are over 65, I'd encourage you to write this one down because it's an encouragement to you specifically, but really to all of us. Psalm 92, verse 14, it says, They shall still bear fruit in old age, and they shall be fresh and flourishing. The idea is that no matter how old we get, we can still be fresh and flourishing in Christ. Fresh and flourishing. That speaks of continuing onward, getting better, getting uh, more vocal. But notice in verse 20, the, the key changes now to a minor key. Actually, I don't think it was really that happy before. But now we get right to the crux of the matter. Nevertheless, verse 20, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat things sacrificed to idols. The idea here in this word allow is they permitted it. They allowed it to happen. They knew it was happening. They didn't do anything about it. They're permitting it, and, and they're basically giving up um, and, and not allowing, uh, not doing what they should be doing. They're just kind of giving up and letting her. They're permitting her, this woman, Jezebel. Now, who is this woman, Jezebel? In some manuscripts, it says uh, that woman uh, is spoken of as your wife. Now, it could be that the pastor's wife was named Jezebel. It's possible. Um, It could be just a woman in the church. We don't really know categorically, and it doesn't really matter, honestly. But we look at this woman, and Jesus calls her Jezebel. Whether that was her real name, we really don't know. But it certainly speaks of her character. It speaks of her character. And you know how many pastors, wives in the church in totality, worldwide, 
instead of being beacons of godliness and modesty, have rather been flirtatious and even adulterous and even seducting and, and seducing other people. You know, and it's, it's on the headlines of papers, we have heard and seen these things ourselves, how uh, a pastor a pastor or a pastor's wife is uh, having uh, affairs with the worship leader or other peoples in their congregation. And this was the kind of character that Jezebel had. She was a woman of power. And again, you got to hear me, there's nothing, nothing against women here, but Jesus is using... This was a real situation happening in this church, and it's been replicated over and over and over and over again, not only in the church, but also even in social life, in secular life, if you will, in corporations all around the country where there's a man and there's also a woman. And the man is the boss, but there's a woman behind the boss, and she's kind of pulling the shots and calling the shots. And the man is just a weak, a weak man, and instead of being a leader, he's just a really more nothing more than a puppet. And this is exactly the characteristic of who Jezebel is. And who was Jezebel? We know that uh, hundreds of years, a couple thousand years actually, going back um, at least o- over uh, quite a bit, uh, a few thousand years, it- it's read for us in 1 Kings chapter 21. Uh, we see it in 1 Kings chapter 18. Um, chapter 19, chapter 21 of 1 Kings, we read about a woman by the name of Jezebel. Jezebel, she was the daughter of Ethbaal, who was a king of the Sidonian. Sidonian, Sidonia, uh, or Sidon, is actually up in modern-day Lebanon in that area. And so she was the daughter of this king back at this time. She was a Gentile, and she was the wife of Ahab. And remember, Ahab was the king of Israel of the northern ten tribes after the, the, the kingdom had split. And it says in these different chapters, you can read 1 Kings um, 16 through 21, actually 18 through 21, and you'll see the descriptors, the description, and the character of this woman Jezebel. And we don't have time to read all of that, but let me just give you some highlights of who she was. And you can find them in those passages I just read to you. But she was also a pagan idolater, as was her father. Uh, The Sidonians uh, um, were known for their, um, their worship of Baal, who was a Canaanite god, and also Asherah, a Canaanite goddess. It was very popular at that time. But she was a pagan idolater and was a Baal worshiper. And this worship that they would worship, Baal and Asherah, included orgies and temple prostitutes. They would actually have temples and they would have prostitutes, male and female. I mean, this was like um, a cross between Animal House and uh, fraternity. (laughs) It was a horrible scene and uh, to the nth degree. And Jezebel was right in the midst of all that, encouraging even members of the church and men and women were getting caught up in this thing. We also find in those passages in 1 Kings that she killed many of the real prophets of God, the prophets that were genuine. When she married Ahab, she killed many of the prophets of God, and she was really the power behind the throne. Ahab was a weak king and he succumbed to all of her enchantments and all the things that she wanted to do. As a Baal worshiper, Ahab just accepted it. He ran with it. He even built an altar to Baal. He was a weak man, but she was the power. She was the power behind the throne. 
And let me just read you a short passage just to kind of give you the character of who this woman is. She killed a man named Naboth who was a man who had a field that her husband wanted. Now, this is a petty thing, but it shows you how light and how awful her character was and Ahab. And Ahab approached this man named Naboth, and he wanted a plot of his land so that he could plant a vegetable garden. And so it's for us in 1 Kings. I'll just read you a few verses. It says, But Jezebel, his wife, came to Ahab because he was crying in his room. Literally, you can read it. He was crying in his room on his pillow, and his wife Jezebel came to him. This is 1 Kings 21, verse 5. She said to him, Why is your spirit so sullen that you eat no food? And he said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth, the Jezreelite, and said to him, Give me your vineyard for money, or else, if it pleases you, I will give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. And then Jezebel, his wife, said to him, You now exercise authority over Israel. Arise, eat food, and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. Oh, doesn't King Ahab have the, have the power? I mean, if he wanted to, it wouldn't be right. But no, he's crying on his pillow, but his wife with the pants, who's wearing the pants of the family, she stands up and she says, I will give it to you. I can almost see, you know, I don't know if any of you have seen the, the movie uh, Jesus of Nazareth by Franco Zeffirelli, but um, uh, uh, Ahab, uh, I'm trying to think of the wife of... Uh, it doesn't really matter, but she had all this makeup on, and she looked just like a, a, a devil with a blue dress. That's really what she was. She was a devil with a blue dress on. And so here we go. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name. She sealed them with his signet ring, and she sent the letters to the elders and the nobles who were dwelling in the city with Naboth. And she wrote in the letters saying, Proclaim a fast and set Naboth with high honor. Make him the guest of honor among the people and seat two men, scoundrels, before him to bear witness against him, saying, You have blasphemed God and the king, and then take him out and stone him that he may die. This is the character of the kind of woman that Jezebel was. And this same kind of woman is now um, really leading this church in Thyatira. Whether she was the pastor's wife, whether she was just another woman in the church, whatever it is, she had a lot of authority and she was able to seduce physically, sexually, uh, her students who were listening to what she was saying. And she was also a woman who went after Elijah, the prophet. Remember, after... um, after the prophets of Baal in 1 Kings chapter 9, or 19, I'm sorry, that after um, Elijah killed those 450 prophets um, of Baal, that, uh, that Jezebel, hearing about this, told Elijah, I'm coming after you next. Not, not Ahab, but Jezebel, I'm coming after you, she says. And what does Elijah do? He runs for the hills. He goes ver- to the very south of Israel in a place called Beersheba, And God has to kind of rebuke him um, at that point lovingly. But let's go on here. So it says says in verse 20 that she called herself a prophetess. Notice she called herself a prophetess. Not everyone who says they speak for God speaks for God. And this is why doctrine is so important that we understand what the Bible says. See, this is why it's important that we read the Bible. Because somebody can say that they speak for God, but if 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 it goes in opposition to what the Word of God says, we can dismiss whatever they have to say. If it doesn't add up to what we know to be true in the Word of God, we can dismiss it. So how important is it then that we read this and know this book? This is God's book for us. It's important that we know it. It's imperative. The greatest thing you can be reading today, put away all of your novels, 
You can read your novels, but read this. Read this. Know this first. So doctrine is important. This is why Paul the Apostle admonished the Bereans, you remember, in, his, in the book of Acts. When Paul visited this town of Berea uh, in one of his missionary journeys he, journeys, he said this about them. He says, These people were fair-minded, more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word of God with all readiness, but they searched the scriptures daily to see whether those things were so. And see, that's what we need to be doing. And had the children of Israel, or had the children uh, here in the, in the church at this time, the, the men and women, had they been really uh, holding fast to those things, uh, maybe they would think twice. But, you know, the flesh is, a, is an interesting thing. Uh, the flesh is something, as we all know with experience, that we can know the truth, we know something is wrong, but yet we do it anyway. And, and, and that's typically the, the tragedy of being a human being. <laughs> but that's why we need to be born again, because this new nature that Jesus gives us, His Holy Spirit in us, we have this, um, this, the very power of God in us to resist those things. Before, we just kind of went to them headlong, and we didn't even think twice about it. Now we have a fighting chance, and we're more than victorious if we choose to be. If we obey, we can fight it with, with God on our side. We can do that. But notice also in verse 20, she says uh, that, 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 that this Jezebel, who called herself a prophetess, she teaches and she seduces my servants, God says, to commit sexual immorality and to eat things sacrificed to idols. Notice whose servants they are. They don't belong to Jezebel. But God says, Jesus says, that she's seducing my servants. There's his ownership. There's his authority. And, and, and they were not hers. They belonged to the Lord. And concerning this phrase where it says, uh, concerning sexual immorality and eating things offered to idols, which she encouraged, it was, um, it was these things that the church of Pergamos, that we read about earlier, they were guilty of these same things. It was the doctrine of Balaam and the doctrine of Nicolaitanism. We read about that last week, and, um, and these things uh, were very true in this church as well. And uh, years before this event, because remember this letter was written around 95 or 96 A.D., back up about 30 years at least, uh, remember when Paul and Peter and Barnabas, as they went around Asia Minor and uh, in that area, ministering in their missionary journeys, and, and they were ministering to Gentiles, th there came a point where um, those from Judah, uh, the Jews from Judah, they began to get up, upset about the Gentiles coming to faith. And, and they would come behind Paul and Peter to the Gentiles and say, well, you can't really be right with God unless you're circumcised and unless you keep the law of Moses. And if you remember, at the, in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 15, this question came up about whether they should be circumcised or whether they need to keep the law of Moses. And there became such a problem that the, 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 the disciples, the apostles, Peter and, and, and Paul and others, came to the leaders in Jerusalem, which we know... Jesus' half-brother James was really the, the leader in that time in Jerusalem. They actually came to them and spoke to them concerning this. And so they, they prayed and they finally came up with a letter to write, to send to those Gentile believers. And what was the letter? Here it is. It says, To the brethren who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, or, uh, Cilicia excuse me, greetings. Since we have heard that some of you went out from us, 
and ha- us and have troubled you with words, unsettling your souls, saying, You must be circumcised and keep the law. To whom we gave no such commandment, it seemed good for us, being assembled with one accord, to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, this is not Judas of Iscariot, by the way, um, who will also report the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things. Now notice what these two, at least these two necessary things are, because we just read them um, in, in this letter. It says, Abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you do well. Farewell. That is the letter that they spoke. And now fast forward 30, at least 30 years and read what we're reading now, that Jesus was speaking. The this, this same thing about uh, sexual immorality and eating things sacrificed to idols, that's the thing that Jesus pronounced judgment upon, upon this woman Jezebel and those who were following her. She was leading them into this cult of Baal worship where they were doing these kinds of things. And it was not good. It was not good at all. And so in verse 21, and it says, Jesus says, And I gave her, I gave Jezebel, time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. I love the fact that God gives us all time to turn away. He doesn't exact punishment upon us. In fact, the Bible says in 2 Peter 3, verse 9, I read this earlier, it says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promises. But notice, he's long-suffering, he's patient toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so repentance is critical, not only to our physical, but also our spiritual life. Because repentance, turning away from these things, is going to keep us from disease, it's going to keep us from uh, a lot of problems, and also it's going to have an effect in where we spend our eternity if those things aren't repented of. We know this to be true. I love what, it's, what Paul said to the Romans in Romans 2, verse 4. He says, Do you despise the riches of God's goodness, His forbearance, and His patience, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? You know, oftentimes God allows us time to repent, just as He did with Jezebel. He gives us time. He gives us time. Isn't time such a valuable thing? More than ever, I'm realizing, I'm only 50 years old, but I'm realizing how valuable time is. When I was younger, when I was in my teen years, I really didn't value time because I felt like I had the whole, you know, eons ahead of me. But now, you know, I still got quite a bit of time, I hope, uh, certainly into eternity, of course. But physically on this earth, time is so valuable. What are you doing? What am I doing with that time? And that, that ought to lead me to a sobriety to really think about these things, right? Read about these things. So, verse 22. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation. I don't believe necessarily that that this is speaking of the great tribulation period, which is coming upon the earth. We don't know when that's going to occur because the church has to be removed in the rapture before the great tribulation. But notice, this is not speaking of the great tribulation Categorically, it's speaking about difficulty. Um, and so, she, he was going to cast her and those who committed adultery with her into great tribulation, into a sickbed, unless they repent of their deeds. And again, God, is he doesn't like to punish. It's a, the Bible calls it a strange work. He doesn't like judgment. 
uh, it is his strange work. But when a child of God or an unbeliever goes to a certain length, God has the right to intervene at certain times to either uh, allow them to be exposed or to warn them all along the way. And I tell you, in my own life, I've seen it in my own life. I've seen it in the lives of other people. And that's just the way God works. He's very, very patient. But do not take that patience as a sign that God is condoning your sin. God never condones sin. And don't take His silence, if you will. It's just space for you to think about what you're doing. And sometimes it may last years. Sometimes it may last weeks, months, years, decades. And you know what? I never want to play games with God's grace. Although I have. (laughs) I don't want to do that because God's grace is so wonderful. And the more we understand God's grace, the less likely we're going to want to really take advantage of it and take it for granted. Because we don't know when God will drop the hammer and when He will expose us. He does it even with believers, men in the pulpit who, have, who are really born again, but they have, a, they have a, a weakness. Maybe it's drugs, maybe it's sex, whatever it is. They, they've never crucified that part of themselves. They've never given that over completely to God. And the devil with the blue dress on comes in and just swipes him out from underneath his feet. His wife and his, his family is destroyed. His ministry is destroyed. Now he's working at you know, someplace making minimum wage because he didn't take control over it. So this is serious stuff. Verse 23, And I will kill her children, meaning these followers of hers. I will kill them with death, the Lord says. And why? And all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and the hearts. Remember that. God is the one who searches the hearts and the minds. Isn't that what it says in Jeremiah chapter 17? Beginning in verse 9, this is what it says. The heart is deceitful above all things. I think we can attest to that, can't we? Each one of us can attest to the fact that our hearts are deceitful above all things. Notice, and desperately wicked. Who can know it? It's a question that God is speaking through Jeremiah. And then finally the Lord answers. And he says, who, you know, who, who can know it? And it says, I the Lord, verse 10, I search the heart. I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. It almost makes you think that the one who wrote Jeremiah is the same one who's writing this letter to Thyatira. Because it is. God inspired Jeremiah to write that. He inspired Jeremiah to write that some, you know, 600 years before Christ was born. Right? And so now, Jesus is writing the very nearly the same words to this church at Thyatira. See, if Jesus does not discipline and judge this church for what it's doing, the others are going to be watching. And that's the unfortunate thing. Uh, whenever we do something, other people are watching. And if God doesn't uh, chasten us, or even if He has to come down harder on us, if He doesn't do that, what, what does that tell everybody else? Oh, wow, God really isn't that big of a... He, he doesn't really have a problem with that particular sin. No, oftentimes the Lord deals harder uh, and quicker with someone in the church rather than He does an unbeliever because other believers are getting stumbled. They're looking at the liberty, and, and not, not, even the, not even the liberty, but the sin that somebody's caught up in and, and not seeing God do anything about it, not seeing their lives, you know, something happening, and, and they get discouraged, and they're like, I don't understand. Has it ever happened to you when you're looking at somebody, maybe somebody who claims to be a believer, and they're doing these horrible things, and they may be born again, they may be not. We don't really know. It's not for us to judge. But you look at them, and you're like, what is going on? 
How can this be? God had to do this so that they could learn this lesson and that others would learn and they would fear God. They would fear God. They would take Him seriously. Hmm. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6, a very similar thing happened. Paul was exhorting the Corinthian church because there was a man, a young man in that church in Corinth who was sleeping with his father's wife. And the church, rather than getting upset about it and doing something about it, they actually boasted in it. And so the, 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 uh, Paul had to come to them and he wrote a letter and he says, uh, 1 Corinthians 5 verse 6, Your glorying is not good, he says. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Leaven is just yeast, right? And a little yeast, what does it do? It, it, it grows and it becomes even, it infects everything around it. Therefore, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. It, it, it's really speaking, the picture is very clear, of a woman with a, a, a ball of dough. She's making rolls or making bread, right? So he says, Therefore, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump since you are truly unleavened. For indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with the old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And so he's just really coming down on them, saying, you guys got to take care of this. But notice in verse 24 in our text this morning, it says, um, now I say to you in the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not know this, have this doctrine, this doctrine of Jezebel and what she did, and who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, he says, I will put no other burden on you. You know, some have thought that to be familiar with sin and certain acts of sin, um, I'm sorry, some have thought that they need to be familiar with certain acts of sin so that they will know firsthand what it's really about. They will know the power of it. They will know the, how difficult it is, and, and, and they'll taste it for themselves. And many people have thought, well, if I just know these things, I can better minister to someone who's involved in it. But see, that is a lie. What did Paul say to the Romans in Romans chapter 6? He says, what shall we say? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And he, he says, certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? And so we need to walk in newness of life, he says. And what does Proverbs say in Proverbs chapter 6, verse 27? Can a man take fire into his bosom and his clothes not be burned? And that's exactly what was happening here, you know, with, uh, with Jezebel and the adultery and the, and the fornication. This is ugly stuff, isn't it? But th this is real. This is real life. And I love that about the Bible. It doesn't candy coat things. It tells us the truth, but also tells us the remedy. Because Jesus is the remedy. He is the remedy. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Isn't that what Paul said to the Romans in chapter 12, verse 21? Don't flirt with darkness and, and see how close you can get to the edge before you're caught or you're found out. Be wise in what is good and naive toward the things that are evil. You know, um, hmm. be careful. You know, especially young people. For those of you who are younger and you're in your early teens, I would, I would say this to you. Be especially careful not to let your curiosity and the short-lived thrill of darkness, because there is a thrill to doing wicked things. There is a thrill. I know it because I did them. And so 
that there's a thrill of darkness, but what happens is, is you, because you're young, you think you can, you can handle it and that you can throttle it and that you can walk away from it at any time you want, but it's not that way. Sin is like a trap. It gets you, and before long, you, you start flirting with it, and all the time you're saying, I can back out any time I want. I can back out any time I want, and there comes a point where you can't back out, and you are totally consumed, and the devil has got a hold of your life. Now, God can save you and deliver you, certainly, but you're going to go through a bitter, bitter experience because you flirted with it. The better thing to do is to not flirt with it. Do not flirt with it. So what does Jesus say here? But hold fast what you have till I come. He admonished them and the good things that they were doing, except for this doctrine of Jezebel and the things she was doing. There were some who were holding fast to love and service and faith and really doing the right things. He says, hold fast what you have till I come, till I come. And Jesus is speaking of the rapture of the church. The people at that time, back in the, in the first century, they were expecting Jesus to return at any time. And here we are, over two, nearly 2,000 years later, and we know that we are expecting Him at any moment, at any moment. The signs are clearer than they've ever been in the Scripture. There is no reason to believe that Jesus is not coming soon, soon. In fact, I would even be willing to say that if He didn't come back in 10 years, I mean, I would be like, how, how much more twisted and bent can the world get that the Bible talks about? Because it talks about the conditions of the world before He does return in His second coming. So if we're already seeing those things, how much sooner then is the removal of the church and the rapture? That's the thing that you got to hang on to. Notice what it says, verse 26. And he who overcomes and keeps my, my works, notice Jesus says, until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. Power over the nations. As believers, we will rule and reign with Christ for a thousand years. On this earth, after the rapture of the church, while there is a great tribulation going on on the earth, a seven-year period of, of all-out uh, God's war with the world, basically, um, you can read about it in Revelations uh, 6 through 19. That's what that's all about. And after that, we return with him at the end of that. And Jesus said that we believers, we will sit. In Matthew 19, verse 28, Jesus said to his disciples, Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, in the millennial reign of Christ, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Now that's speaking of the, the, the disciples, or, or the, the apostles. And also, uh, Paul said to, um, to Timothy, in 2 Timothy 2, verse 11, This is a faithful saying, For if we died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. When is that reign going to begin? It's going to begin in the millennial reign of Christ. And there are many other scriptures, but those are just a couple. But we will rule and reign, the Bible says, as kings and priests unto God in that millennial reign. And so that's what he's talking about. And notice he says, And those of you who keep my works till the end, what, what are God's works? Well, Jesus defined what his, his works are. In John chapter 6, what does it say? It says, Then Jesus said to, to um, then, I'm sorry, then the multitude said to him, to Jesus, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? And Jesus said, answered and said to them, This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. That's it. That is the work of God, to believe him whom God has sent. And that is who? 
Jesus Christ. That's why it all centers about Jesus Christ. It's all about Him. We're almost done here. Hang on, folks. <laughs> I know we've gone a little long today, but this is a, one of the longest letters. It is the longest letter of the seven churches. And there's a lot here, and it's so wonderful. So much encouraging here. He says in verse 27, He shall rule them uh, with a rod of iron. Jesus, and during the millennial reign, He shall rule the nations with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessel, as also I have received of my Father. And you can read about this on your own time, but read Psalm 2, uh, especially verses 8 and 9. It speaks of this, of Jesus ruling the nations with a rod of iron. And also in Daniel chapter 2, write this verse down, Daniel chapter 2, verses 34 through 45. It speaks of a vision that uh, God had given to Nebuchadnezzar, a pagan king during Daniel's lifetime. And God had given to Nebuchadnezzar uh, basically an over uh, an outline of the world kingdoms, uh, including his own, and how Jesus would come back, this stone that would be cut out of a, this mountain that would be cut out of stone um, that would smash that image that represented all the kingdoms of the world. Jesus would be the one that would crush those things. And he will do that when he returns in his second coming. Read about it in Revelation 19, beginning in verse 11. It's a wonderful time when the Lord returns physically back to the earth in his glorious second coming. But notice in verse 28, we're almost done. He says, and I will give him the morning star. And I will give him the morning star. This, uh, there's not a lot known about this, but one thing that we know about a morning star is that it doesn't appear until immediately before the sunrise. When, when things are the darkest, that, that, that morning star shines the brightest. And it's really speaking of the rapture of the church, we believe. When Jesus says, and I will give him the morning star, he's basically saying, I'm going to give you that experience. I'm going to give you my very self, and here's how I'm going to come back. And the very darkest part of history, I am going to shine I am going to come before the sun comes up and the dawning of a new day, this millennial reign. When the sun comes up, that morning star is, is, is Jesus. He is going to come and return for His church. Do you believe that? You know, it sounds like, um, you know, for some it may sound like something out of Hollywood. Well, what, why do you think, uh, how, where do you know Hollywood, uh, how do they get all their crazy things that they, they make movies about? You know, sometimes the truth can be stranger and more uh, fascinating than fiction. Uh, and certainly we read in the Bible here, I mean, I remember when I was younger and somebody told me about the rapture of the church and I thought, man, this sounds like Star Trek. And, and I started to, to, um, uh, to really uh, disdain it. I, I really started to put it down. Um, and and the, the thing is, is the truth is more marvelous than fiction. Because these things are really going to happen. Jesus has never lied to us. He never will lie to us. He has always been true to who He is. And you can trust everything that He said about the past has come to pass, literally. And there's much history behind us that He spoke of. And we have no reason to believe that what He says for the future is not going to happen. Because we see these things lining up. We see these things lining up, folks. If you, if you don't see these things lining up, you're not paying attention. You're not paying attention. Read Matthew 24. Earthquakes and pestilences and famines. And, and these things will, are the beginning of sorrows before He returns. Okay, These things are happening. Just yesterday there was a, an earthquake, a 5.5 earthquake in Puerto Rico. 
it was on the news and boom, it's gone because it's, these things are happening so much now in all these different places around the world. It, it, it makes news for a minute, but because only a few people click on it, you know, the, the news agencies are going, well, we can't make any money off that headline. Let's find some more bad news. <laughs> and so that's what happens. But these things are happening. And notice how Jesus, he says, the morning, I will give him the morning star. I love what Paul finally, one verse, and then we're done. Paul wrote to Titus, and he says, we're looking for the blessed hope, verse 13. Looking for the blessed hope, the return and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who what? Gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people. That's you and I, if you're a believer, zealous for good works. Do you, do you enjoy doing good things? I mean, I do. It's a wonderful thing to do good things. You know, there are times when I don't do so, you know, there might be a thing or two that I don't do good, and only God knows. But, you know, I want to do good things. I'm sick of doing, uh, being led by my own desires and flesh and doing stupid things. Maybe you can uh, join with me in the chorus. I want to do good things. I want to be an ambassador. I want to be a, uh, someone who the Lord can use. Do you want to be somebody who the Lord can use? Finally, he ends this letter to Thyatira, and he says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So this letter was not only written to a specific church in Thyatira, but guess what? All of these churches, all these letters were written, sent to individual churches, and the other churches were to read it as well. Because in these churches, we find all kinds of good things and a lot of bad things that we really need to, to work on. And that's why these letters these seven letters to the churches that Jesus wrote are so important for us today because we can all see elements of ourselves in here and it would be good for us to look at it and say, you know what, Lord, I need to turn. I need to turn from this, from whatever it is. And so take these things seriously and we'll let's end in prayer. But I want to encourage you, this is a difficult letter. They are there for our encouragement because Jesus does commend but he also rebukes. And, you know, we need that too. We need to be commended for things that we're doing right. And only the Lord knows for sure. Um, but I would encourage you, as we have read and will continue for the next three weeks, look at these churches of Revelation before we get into the, the uh, other exciting things too. Take note of these things and don't just let it go in one ear and out the other. It's so easy to think of somebody else, some other, someone else. And we never look at our own selves. As you read these letters, as we read them together, look at your own self. Stop pointing the finger at other people and look right in the mirror and point the finger at that person in the mirror and say, that person needs to change. That person, you've been, you've been harboring this hatred, this anger, this bitterness, this unforgiveness. You've been doing this wicked thing on the side nobody knows about. You need to turn from it. You need to return from it, right? And that's what we all need to do. We all need to do, do not allow yourself to stay in the status quo. Be changing. Let God change you. And you cannot change unless you really are born again. You can put a Band-Aid on it. That's what all that is. You can go to a class and, and, and you can fill your head with philosophy. It's only a Band-Aid. The only thing that's going to change you is Jesus Christ. The Spirit of God is the only one who can change you and me. He's changed me wonderfully forever and I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful. He's changed me and He's changing me. I'm not, you know, none of us are perfect. And we don't have to tout that we are because we're not. 
but we need the Lord. We need, isn't that an old song? People need the Lord. But we do. We need the Lord badly. So let's pray. And I would encourage you, if you, if you haven't received Christ, do it now. It's, it's so simple. You, just, you, you confess to God quietly. It doesn't have to be something public. It can be. But confess to God what your sin and tell Him, Lord, I'm tired of this old nature of mine. I'm tired of hiding. I want to come clean with everything to you. And I, I ask that you'd forgive me. And I plead the blood of Christ over my life. I give you my life. Please come into my heart, God. Save me. Make my life a blessing. Because right now my life's not a blessing, Lord. Bless me, Lord. Turn my heart around. Turn my life around, God, and make me an ambassador for you. And I trust you, Lord. You know, if you've prayed that, if you some semblance of that, welcome to the family of God. Because that is what it's all about, folks. That is what it's all about. So, Father, we thank you for this time. Pray that you'd bless my brothers and sisters, Lord. I know this has been a long time in your word today. We can get away with it because we're, we're sitting in front of a monitor. We're sitting in front of a phone. But, Lord, you've spoken some really wonderful words to us this morning. You've spoken some very difficult things for us to really wrestle with, Lord. Have your way with us, Lord. Don't let us... Continue in the status quo any longer. May we give our heart completely to you. We ask it in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen.